Well, hey, it's always good to be with you. Hello, St. Paul family. Glad to be with you today. Amen. Amen to that. Glad to have you joining us uh, live stream as well from wherever you are. You might be on a little jogging mission. Obviously, I'm not jogging right now, but you might be out and about in nature, at home, wherever you are. It is good to have you with us as we come together. Uh, it's been good to see so many people starting to feel a little more confident, getting out a little bit more. More people are getting vaccinated that have chosen to be vaccinated. Um, hopefully, we're, we're experiencing a little more normalcy. For those of you that are still feeling a little, you know, shut in at home, know that, that you can connect with us online. You know, we've got a lot going on uh, via live stream. You can connect with our, um, our app, St. Paul UMC app as well, and see lots of things that are happening throughout the week. And don't forget to join us on Wednesdays at 1 for our Digging Deeper. So we take what we're talking about on Sundays, and we go and we find something to pick out a little bit more and, and dig a little bit deeper on Wednesdays at 1. Uh, you can catch us on Facebook Live for that. Well, we've been in this series talking about Let's Talk. We've had a table as the center of our um, understanding that uh, some of the greatest conversations in life come when we're sitting at a table, but it's a call back to the table. It's a call back to a conversation, and it reminds us that it's not just our table, it's God's table, and how appropriate that is today as we celebrate Holy Communion, amen? And uh, we come together to see that. So um, I have the pleasure of uh, kicking, or I, I guess ending our series with one about the tough questions. Now, we've been talking about different kinds of things. Last week, Pastor Pam talked about how we get out of the bubbles and how we uh, make sure that, that all people are invited to the table and get out of our uh, safety net and, and make sure that we're integrating and, and, and acting with other people, people that we don't even know, people that are outside of our little circles. And today, we're gonna hammer at those tough questions. So um, no matter what room we walk into, my guess is that whatever room it is, in that room in your house or room in the workplace or maybe it's outside at the golf course or whatever, there's gonna be an elephant in it, okay? You know what that expression means, the elephant in the room? Um, that's what we're gonna talk about today. So that, that image that you're seeing, I, I want that to be kind of central uh, to, to where we're gonna happen here. Uh, it's conversations that we have. Like, let's say that we're, we're having conversations with uh, people that differ with us politically or theologically. That usually brings an elephant in the room, doesn't it? That uncomfortable feeling. Maybe you're somebody who's um, planning that trip soon back to get all of the family together. You know, those distant relatives, Cousin Eddie and all those kind of characters, you know? And you know what it's like gathering all those people together? Some of those people you don't want to like give that invitation to, but you know it's the right thing to do, so you do that. And, 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 and that kind of that fractured family, that dysfunctions of your family come together. And then there's, there's, when you start talking, what? There's going to be an elephant in the room. And elephants are everywhere. They're in the halls of Congress. They're, they're, they're in uh, church meetings. They're in church sidewalks. They, they happen in our homes. They happen in our schools. They happen uh, in our communities and all the places where we are. The elephants are there. They're public elephants. They're private elephants. They're sacred elephants. They're not so sacred elephants. But everywhere we go, there's an elephant in the room. There's that thing that kind of hangs over us. It's, that, it's what it kind of pulls at our gut, right? And we don't really want to talk about it. But we know that it's there and we know that we can expect it. And I'm hoping today that we can have some opportunities that I give you some tools, take you through the scriptures and help us to learn how to deal with those uncomfortable or those tough conversations as we finish this series, Let's Talk. Now here's the good news. The good news is that Jesus provides us a way through this. 
Jesus gives us. See, Jesus not only forgives us once, not only forgives us twice, 30 times, a thousand times, a billion times, infinite amount of times. So we know that the gospel tells us that when we get into these tough conversations, that Jesus sees us who for where we are, and he saves us, but not only saves us from a salvation point of view, but he saves us in making fools of ourselves so that when we're having these tough conversations, we know how to say the right thing, but more importantly, we know how to listen and we know how to apply and, and be real. So at St. Paul, I, I like to say that, that um, we believe that Jesus' life and death and resurrection makes a difference, but that we're living proof that it makes a difference. Okay? So that's kind of the platform I want to uh, lean off of today, kind of move us in this direction. But listen, um, when it comes to those elephants in the room, when it comes to those tough conversations, when it comes to those dysfunctional things that we're just not sure in our own lives or the lives of others how we want to deal with that, let me tell you something. Jesus won't heal it unless we name it. Do you believe that? He won't heal it unless we name it. Because the minute we name it, we claim it, and we claim it as that we own it, and we recognize it, and we can call upon the power of God to say, this is what I know is happening in my life. This is what's going on. This is what I've said. This is the person that I am. Lord, come heal this situation because I see that. The same thing with our tough conversations. When we enter into those tough conversations, if we don't name it in advance, Lord, I know this is going to be a tough conversation with my friend with my wife, with my husband. It's going to be a tough conversation with my pastor. It's going to be a tough conversation with my friend or whomever it is, my employer. Lord Jesus, come and heal and be a part of this conversation. That's where we've got to begin. And that's the thing that we can't forget as we do this. You see, as we, as we look at this, those tough conversations, sometimes we just want to avoid them. But we can't. We have to have strength. Let's uh, go on our Bibles or on our Bible apps to Matthew chapter 18 today. That's kind of where I'm going to have us land a little bit, Matthew 18. And um, some of you are looking at, hey, wow, this looks familiar. Preacher, you talked about this several months ago. Yeah, I did. And why do I keep bringing up Matthew 18? Because I really believe we've got to learn what this means. Because the only way we're going to have a better relationship with God, the only way we're going to have a better relationship with each other is to know how to deal with those elephants in the room, but more importantly, how we go about life in our conversations with each other and what it means to walk the way that Jesus walked. You see, these kind of conversations make us uncomfortable. I'm looking around, I'm seeing twitching, I'm seeing fidgeting more than normal. And you know what, it's okay. Because what greater place for us to address this than is the family of God? And so let's, let's really focus on this and how we get there. So let me set this up. So Jesus has just talked about leaving the 99, the 99 sheep, metaphor for um, adult, child, or student. I'm, I'm leaving the 99, the safe, the whatever, to go find the one. And this didn't really set well with his disciples because his disciples were kind of like, well, wait a minute, why, why are we chasing after the one? You know, why, why is the one so important? And so Jesus is already making his disciples uncomfortable. He is obsessed. I can't find a better word, but obsessed of finding the one. And it really irks his disciples. And he's not, they're not really happy. But listen, here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying to his disciples then, and he's telling us as his disciples, if you're going to walk with me, 
You're going to meet people that you don't like. You're going to meet people you don't get along with. You're going to meet people that are different than you. And life's going to be messy. And there's going to be elephants in the room. And so if you're going to walk with me, you've got to acknowledge the messiness of life. And I'm going to show you how, Jesus said, to get through this. So Jesus taught his disciples this pathway. He said, here's a model. In fact, it's a three-pronged model. Uh, it was almost like Jesus was the master sermon writer. Here's three things that you need to do in order to deal with conflict or those tough conversations, the elephant in the room. Now, this can be with somebody that you're in a covenantal relationship with. This can be with a total stranger. This can be with a coworker, a fellow student. It doesn't matter. A friend, this is a model that Jesus says is the model that you and I are to use when it comes to dealing with conflict in our relationships. Here's what he said. If another brother or another believer, I should say, sins against you, go privately and point out the offense. If the other person listens and confesses it, so if the other person says, I, I hear what you're saying and you're right, if they confess it, then you have won that person back. So we're gonna remember that statement, won that person back. He goes on to say, but if you are unsuccessful, take one or two others with you and go back again so that everything that you say may be confirmed by two or three witnesses. If the person still refuses to listen, take your case to the church. Then if he or she won't accept the church's decision, treat that person as a pagan or a corrupt tax collector. What's Jesus saying? He says the first thing you got to do is name the elephant. You've got to name what it is. Now listen, sometimes that's not easy to do. Sometimes we get a little fidgety. Sometimes we're, we're pleasers. There's a lot more pleasers than we think in the world. And, and so we want to please somebody. So we're not really sure we want to like tell the truth. We want to kind of like sweep it under the rug. The difference between being a peacekeeper and a peacemaker, remember? Sweep it under the rug, ignore it. It's not there. Just don't deal with it. But yet Jesus says we need to name the elephant. Now, I hope you joined Pastor Pamela's last Wednesday at Wednesday at One Digging Deeper because she talked about John chapter 4. She talked about the woman at the well. If you didn't catch that, go back and check it. Wednesday at 1 was phenomenal this past week. She talked about the woman at the well. So here Jesus meets this uh, woman at the well, and, and it's a, um, an interesting combination. It's an interesting situation. You see, in the first century, women did not speak to men publicly unless it was their husband. Jesus meets this Samaritan woman at the well, and they have this conversation, you know, she's talking about water and all, and Jesus asks for a drink, and this whole conversation goes, but then Jesus names the elephant in the room. Here's what he, he says to her. He, he recognizes that relationship-wise, that she's out of whack, that she is not in right relationship in the earth or with God, and he names it. And he loves her enough that he names it. Here's what he says. You know, he says, you don't have a husband, for you've had five husbands, and you aren't even married to the man that you're living with now. You see, there's a lot of, a lot of things wrong in her relationship right now. And Jesus said, you certainly spoke the truth. Because now he got the woman to say it. He got the woman to name it. Because she engages in this conversation relationally. And Jesus says, exactly, you're right. You've named it. Now, why, why would he name the elephant in the room? Why would he point that out? Some, some are real critics, and they'll look at the scriptures, and they'll say, Jesus was trying to shame the woman. I, I don't think that's at all what he was doing. He was trying to point out her sin. You like the way I said that? Sin. It's not at all what he was doing. He was trying to heal her, folks. 
He wasn't trying to shame her. He was trying to heal her. He knew that she needed his healing. And so, so to deny it would forbid him from healing her. So he's trying to get her to share that she knows what's going on. Because if you name it, he can heal it. You see, most of our problems, most of our conflicts, they're unhealthy, they're, un, they're unproductive, but we're just too afraid to name it. We're too afraid we're gonna hurt somebody else's feelings. We're afraid they're not gonna like us anymore if we're just honest with it. Jesus said time and again, don't do that. He says, name it. Listen to me, when, when someone has hurt you, when someone has said something that's hurtful, when someone has done something that's hurtful to you, you're, you're not supposed to ignore it. In fact, what, what Jesus says to us is he, he says, you know, um, you're supposed to deal with it. You know, we're not supposed to go on Facebook and tell the world about it. We're not supposed to start calling up all of our friends on the phone and texting them and, and telling them, look what so-and-so did to me and can you believe this and all of that. That's not at all what Jesus said. Jesus says we must have faith and we must have courage to go to one another and work the things out. Did you catch that? Faith and courage. You see, what happens is, though, we choose to stew and spew about it. We, we want to, like, like, just gnaw on it like an old gristle to an old, bad, ribeye, one-bone steak with lots of bone marrow that Joe had this weekend. Right, Joe? But that was a good one, though, wasn't it? Okay. We just want to just gnaw on it, and we just want to hold on to this anger and angst and everything that is. But I love what he says. He says, don't spend a lot of time worrying and wondering about it. He says, go quickly. Go quickly and come before your brother or sister and share. Here's what the Apostle Paul said. Paul said, go ahead and be angry. So anger is okay. Some of us are taught we're not allowed to get angry. No, 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 no. We're allowed to get angry, but, but James would say, don't let our anger become sin. It's a big difference. He says, you will do well to be angry, but don't use your anger, Paul says, as fuel for revenge. Now that's the sin. I'm going to be angry and use it to get against you and bring about some revenge. And don't stay angry. I love that. Don't stay angry, Paul says. Don't go to bed angry. Don't give the devil that kind of foothold in your life. Wow. You ever just kind of like been upset at somebody and you just kind of like all day long, maybe a week? And, and what's it accomplishing? Nothing. But what Paul says when we do that, the devil, the devil, the great deceiver, the great one of evil gets a foothold, not just in our life, but in our heart. And what happens when the devil gets a hold of our heart? Oh my gosh, it it's, it's destroys us. Jesus said, don't do it. So, so what are we supposed to do then? He says we're supposed to like talk about it and all that. We're supposed to connect and then correct. Connect first, then correct. So what Jesus is saying is the most important thing is the relationship. The second thing is the situation. And what happens is we reverse that so many times. We think it's the situation and we put everything into that and we forget the relationship with the person. And Jesus said, no, we are to connect then to correct. He says in 1815, if another believer sins against you, go privately, point out the offense. If the person listens and confesses it, you have, there's that statement, won that person back. 
I wanted you to remember that statement. One, that person back is in the Greek. It translates into the word gain. We have gained that person back. In the first century, it, it, it went even further, and it went into um, conversion. That if the person listens to you and understands and changes their behavior, then they have been converted into the faith. Do you see the power of going to the person and, and, con and confronting? And the word confront means to come before, to come before them. Nathan and King David, one of my favorite stories of, of confronting, to have the courage and the faith to do that. Why do we want to gain the relationship so that the relationship can resume? The relationship that is fractured can be put back together. The relationship that we thought was lost is now found in the good that can come with us. Jesus was serious about this. But here's the challenge today. We, we live in a digital world, right? We do things digitally today. We fire off emails, text messages, tweets, Instagrams. We, we're constantly in, in that kind of mode, Facebooking. We're in a digital world and we don't think twice about becoming keyboard crusaders, do we? We just like fire off words that just trash and cut the knees off of folk right and left, and it doesn't even matter. We've lost the art. There it is, Doc, the art of relationships. And Jesus says there's a way to do this. We need to connect and then correct. So, so what happens if I, if, let's say Pastor Pam and I are out of whack. What happens if I go to her and and she doesn't change her way because of something that I know is not right for her. I go to her privately, and she's like, no, I'm not going to do it. So what does Jesus say? Jesus says that if you're unsuccessful, then take one or two others with you and go back again so that everything that you say may be confirmed by those two or three witnesses. Take two to three people with you. Now listen, listen closely. He doesn't say take your BFF with you, best friend forever. He doesn't take, say take the person that's totally on your side and totally committed to whatever your agenda is and doesn't matter what the other person's about. He says take a godly person, take a wise person, take somebody who has a level-headed mind, who can hear the whole thing, their case and yours, and that person can help win over the situation. You see, we need to rethink this. We don't go to the other person just so that we can be right and prove that they're wrong. No. We go to them with one agenda. We want to restore this relationship. We want to regain a friend. We want to have a conversion experience for somebody. And that's the motivation, not to prove them right or wrong or ourselves right or wrong, but to win them back into the favor of God. Bring two to three witnesses. Why does Jesus say that? Well, it goes back to the, the old laws of Moses in Deuteronomy. And De what Deuteronomy said was that, that you couldn't just take somebody to trial or confront somebody in public with just one witness. In fact, what it says, you must not convict anyone of a crime, it says in Deuteronomy 19, on the testimony of only one witness. You can't do that. The facts of the case must be established by the testimony of two to three witnesses. Connecting and then correcting isn't about he said or she said. It's about restoration. It's about regaining. 
It's about rebuilding, and it's about placing together that relationship. So, okay, so, so we go privately. That doesn't work. We take two to three godly people with us, not, not people who will tout solely our agenda. That doesn't work. Then what? It says, if the person still refuses to listen, take your case to the church. Now, some people look at that and go like, finally, I can bring this person before hundreds and hundreds of persons and shame them in public. The scripture says that. And listen, there are people who take the scriptures and use it as a bully weapon. That's not at all what Jesus is saying here. Let's make sure we get this right. He says, then if he or she won't accept the church's decision, treat that person as a pagan or a corrupt tax collector. Wow, all right, now Jesus is putting some biting language in here. Wow, Jesus said that? It's almost like, you know, my mother-in-law, when she would cuss, she'd say fat. Jesus is cussing. He's saying pagan and corrupt tax collector. Well, what, what does all this mean? What's he saying this? He's not saying take it before the whole church of hundreds of people. See, we have to remember, when, when Jesus spoke these words, what was the church? It's probably eight to ten people in a house, wasn't it? The house church. So when he says take it before the church, what he's really doing is he's showing us the intimacy of pure community. He's saying eight to ten people who are doing life together, like our source groups. Eight to ten people who are doing life together. Bring that person before those eight to ten who, who love that person, who want nothing but what's good for that person, and let them be the ones who are involved here. Jesus isn't shaming. He's not you know, exposing. What he's trying to do is to bring healing to the relationship. So now what about this tax collector pagan stuff? I mean, you know, didn't Jesus hang out with tax collectors? Pastor Pam broached on that a little bit this past time as well. Yeah, he did. And, and it's interesting, Matthew, who's the writer of this gospel, is, is actually a tax collector. And, and Jesus is talking about all these things. Here, here's what I don't think. I don't think what he's saying when he says about tax collectors and pagans, I don't think he's saying kick people out of the church. That'd be so anti-grace, Right? What I think he's saying is set a boundary. I think what he's saying is that, that treat him like a pagan or a tax collector, like an unbeliever. What he's saying is set a boundary. So, so if that person, if they won't be won over by you going to them privately because you and they have the offense together, if they haven't responded to you bringing two to three other people who, who out of love want to help reconcile, if they've been brought before a small group of people called the church and they still won't do, I think what he's saying is set a boundary. He's saying... Love those persons, but don't let them be a part of your inner circle. Now, here's how I deal with it. I can love people. I can forgive people. But I can do it at a distance. And I don't mean that flippantly. I don't mean that as a funny story. Think about that. We are called to love. We are called to forgive. We're not called to have everybody in our inner circle. And not everybody can be in our inner circle. So, so what he's saying is, he's saying, make a boundary. Let that person know that as long as they're going to be under that behavior, as long as they're going to not confess their sin, as long as they are not going to want to reconcile with you, that you're going to forgive them, you're going to pray for them, you're going to love them, but they're not going to be a part of your inner circle until something changes. You see, when we let, when we let dysfunctional people into our inner circle, when we let people who are intent on bringing havoc to our lives, what does it do? It discombobulates our own soul, doesn't it? 
So why would I let somebody who does not want to acknowledge that there's a fault in life and reconcile with that, why would I want them to be one of my closest inner soulful people in my circle? For that time of, of season, I'm not. I'm gonna love them, I'm gonna forgive them, but it's gonna be at a distance. And Jesus is talking exactly about that. Peter, Peter's sitting there taking notes. You know, he's observing all this. And Peter says, okay, Jesus, so, so how many times am I supposed to forgive my brother who sins against me? And think about when Peter said that, he's mending nets, and he's probably thinking about how the other fishermen, you know, they're tearing the nets, and none of them are, are mending the nets. They're just kind of leaving it to Peter to do. And, and Peter's just like, you know, how many times do I need to forgive them? And, and Peter knew what the ancient rule was. The ancient rule was three times. He knew that. So he thought he'd get some brownie points with Jesus, and he says, Shall I forgive him seven times? Jesus says not seven, but 70 times seven. Now some people are doing math. Whoa, okay. It's not a literal number, guys. What it means is in an infinite amount of times, we are to offer forgiveness and never stop offering forgiveness. Can't be cheap grace. Cheap grace says, I forgive you, and then you're harboring a grudge. You can't do that. No, it, it has to be real. You see, what happens is unforgiveness. The reason why Jesus says we must do this all the time, we must forgive, 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 and do it again and again and again. You see, unforgiveness doesn't wound the offender unforgiveness wounds the offended. Because when we don't forgive, it eats at us. It holds us captive. We become a prisoner and we can't be set free. So Jesus says, keep forgiving, keep connecting because God is a deep healer. Jesus finishes teaching on conflict by saying, I tell you the truth, whatever you bind on heaven will be bound on earth, and whatever you forgive on or loose on heaven will be loosed on earth. He's going through this whole great teaching of all these things. But then he says this. He says, for where two or three come together in my name, there I'm in the midst. That's Matthew 18, 20. You know, why is he talking about worship? Well, he's not. You know, sometimes we use that. Where two or three or more gathered in his name, he is here in the midst. Why is Jesus saying those words in the middle of his conflict speech? Because he's saying to us, whatever conflict that you are fearing the most, whatever, whatever conversation you think you cannot have, whatever reconciliation that you feel is not possible, he says, don't sweat it, I am there with you. It's about conflict resolution, not worship. It's about forgiveness. It's about restoration. You mean, Jesus, you want to be a part of these hard conversations with me? Yes, he does. Let me take you back in time to Durham, North Carolina, 1971. There was segregation of schools. Black kids and white kids could not come together in the same school. Durham was struggling just like a lot of other cities in our country at that particular time. A community organizer named Bill Riddick was invited to come in and to try to bring some resolution to this and open a conversation to, to desegregate the schools, make them inclusive of all children. 
And Riddick employed a, a little technique called a charrette. A charrette means that, that you bring um, interested parties, stakeholders is the term, who have stake in the conversation. You bring them to a common table, not singularly, but you bring them together. And you have a conversation to work out the differences. And, and the goal of the charrette is to allow some sort of um, openness, but a completion of the activity that is there. So Reddick said, okay, I'm going to co-chair this particular, this particular charrette. So he invited Ann Atwater. Ann Atwater was a uh, civil rights activist uh, during that time. She was fighting for the rights of blacks, black people, and, and she loved Jesus. And Riddick said, but, but I'm also going to co-chair, so it can't just be about Ann Atwater. And he invites C.P. Ellis to the table. C.P. Ellis was the, was the exalted cyclops of the Ku Klux Klan. And he brings these two fierce enemies to one table for a charrette to talk about how to desegregate schools. C.P. Ellis and Ann Atwater literally hated each other, hated each other. You can imagine opposite ends of the spectrum. They come together. He starts calling her the forbidden word from day one. And she says that it was a moment that she pulled out a knife from her purse, opened the blade, and was going to grab the Klan leader's head and pull it back and slit his throat from ear to ear the first chance she could get. But her pastor who was there saw what she was going to do. He pulled her hand down and said, don't give them the satisfaction. For 10 days... For 10 days, these two talked about desegregation of schools and why. And, and C.P. Ellis, the, 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 the Cyclops of the Ku Klux Klan, he said, I, I hated black people. I hated integration. I didn't like demonstrations downtown, and I especially hate Ann Atwater's guts. That's a direct quote. You can you see the tension? Can you see the elephant in the room in this particular situation? They spent 10 days in a shred sorting through the differences, trying to find common ground. And at the end, something happened, a miracle. Ellis said, it finally came to me that I had more in common with poor black people than I did with white rich ones. Then the children of Durham came together, little black children, little white children. They came together and said, we want to go to school together. Make this happen. And Atwater and Ellis took a step back and they recognized in that moment that what they were fighting against was the wrong thing. And they realized that it was an important role to go and to desegregate these schools. Let me tell you, it was so moving in the life of C.P. Ellis, the exalted cyclops of the Ku Klux Klan, that he stood before the crowd and ripped up his Klan card a move that certainly meant death for him in some respects. Friends, how, how does that happen? How does, how does C.P. Ellis leave the Klan? How does, how does he vote to desegregate schools? Ann Atwater and, and C.P. Ellis, they, they remained friends for the rest of their lives. He died in 2005, and his family reached out to Ann Atwater and said, would you preach his funeral? Now, how does a black civil rights leader preached the funeral of the former cyclops of the Ku Klux Klan. Folks, it's Jesus. It has to be. It's Jesus. When everybody says it's going to be too hard, we just won't have those hard conversations. 
We can't have those hard conversations as a church. We can't have those hard conversations in our families. You know what? You can. How? Jesus. When somebody says we're too divided as a nation, this nation can never heal. Yes, it can. Why? Because of Jesus. When I know that there's folks in our church that are Republicans, that are Democrats, and all in between, and I see us working together for the common good of this community, it only happens because of Jesus. Imagine a world, imagine a world where there's brown people and black people and white people and gay people and straight people, all people working together for the common good. Jesus said, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Folks, that's not just some nice little prayer that he generated and said, here, pray this. That's God's vision for this world. And the only way it's gonna happen because two or three are gathered in the midst and he's there. He's working the conflict and he's making it happen. And it resolved. It's Jesus.